Welcome to the ASRS Oral History of Retina series. The purpose of these interviews is to capture first-hand stories from individuals with unique retinal insights of historical significance. Through these discussions, we will fill in gaps in our understanding of the evolution of the science and practice of retina. And it's our hope that these discussions will serve as the illuminating element in the larger mosaic of the history of retina. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have as my guest, Dr. Gary Abrams. Dr. Abrams is director of the Ligon Research Center for Vision and professor and former chairman of ophthalmology at the Kresge Eye Institute of Wayne State University. He has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and he has delivered over 1,000 presentations, visiting professorships and courses across the globe. He has served on numerous National Institutes of Health review panels, as well as data and safety monitoring committees for multiple national trials. He has served as president of ARVO, the AUPO, and the Milwaukee Ophthalmological Society. And he has received simply too many honors and awards to fully list here, but a few that are particularly noteworthy include the ASRS Pyron Award for Excellence in Retina Research, the AAO Secretariat Award for Outstanding Service to the AAO, the Paul Kaiser International Award in Retina Research, election to the Wayne State University Academy of Scholars, and the establishment of two endowed lectureships in his name, one at Kresge Eye Institute and one at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. You started your education at the University of Oklahoma, graduating there in 1964. From there, you went on to medical school at University of Oklahoma, you left there in 1968 and did your internship at the University of Oregon. A stint in the military from 1969 to 1973 followed that internship, after which you went on to ophthalmology residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin from 73 to 76. He went on to fellowship at Baskin Palmer from 1976 to 1978. He remained at Baskin Palmer and joined the faculty from 1978 to 1980 after which he was lured away to the Medical College of Wisconsin, where he remained until 1992. He joined the Associated Retina Consultants in 1992 and stayed there until 1994, at which time he was once again lured away, this time to become chairman of Wayne State University Department of Ophthalmology and the Kresge Eye Institute, where he remained in the chairmanship role from 1994 to 2011. So uh, what led to ophthalmology? I know you did a stint in the military after medical school. Had, had you made a decision on ophthalmology before going into the, into, uh, the military or after that? Uh, it was during the military that I decided. Uh, I was in the Navy and uh, I was a flight surgeon, uh, and, uh, which was actually a great experience uh, in itself. And we had a... Uh, 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 an ophthalmologist, Harry Brown, who uh, actually Harry got a, Harry was a, a pilot and uh, he would go to uh, do medical missions in Mexico and, and Central America. And then he would tell me about all he was doing, you know, as an ophthalmologist and uh, his medical missions. And I said, you know, that really looks like it'd be a good thing to do. Up to that point, I'd been planning on uh, internal medicine 
and specifically I was interested in, in going into cardiology. Uh, but uh, uh, after uh, my experience with Harry Brown, I decided, heck, I'll be an ophthalmologist. So I started applying to ophthalmology residencies. Boy, serendipity, right? Uh, absolutely. Probably just as illustrious in cardiology, but, but quite different. Well, I have no doubt if I'd have gone into cardiology, I would think it was the greatest field in the world. Yep. Just like I think ophthalmology and retina is the greatest field in the world. I think uh, much of life is attitude. Yep, I agree. I think that speaks to your personality of being curious and, and an innovator and somebody that tackles things no matter what it is. Which leads us to the rest of your career. So you went on and did your ophthalmology residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin from 73 to 76. Um, and you could have gone into any aspect of ophthalmology. It could have been cornea or oculoplastics, but it ended up being retina. What do you think was the key instigator of that decision? I finished the military in December of 1972. And then... Uh, I moved to Milwaukee. Uh, it was it was about 80 degrees in California, and I, we drove to Milwaukee. And the first night uh, uh, we were in our house, uh, it hit 25 below zero, and my car wouldn't start <laughs> the next morning. I needed a job. Went over to uh, the department there, and I said, "You know, do you have any research jobs?" And I said, "I've never done any research, but I would." I think it'd be fun. I'd like to do research. So in January, I started a research project and I met with Tom Auberg and I met uh, with Henry Edelhauser. And Tom said, well, we'd really like to learn about this new gas that Robert Mockamer has talked about for vitrectomy called SF6 gas. And we'd like to figure out how that works. It turned out it was just a great, is a great project and a great, great experience. And I, I talked with Tom Auberg just a tremendous amount on this, on this project. He got very involved in it. He was very interested in it. I would go over and I'd watch Tom doing vitrectomies. I'll never forget the first time I'm sitting there looking through the microscope and I'm thinking it's like a, it's like a headlight in the fog. This is just amazing. And you see the swirling vitreous and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And before I'd ever seen a cataract operation, I'd already decided I was going to go into uh, retina and I was going to do vitrectomies. And so we ended up, we did our uh, project and uh, we figured out the non-expansile concentration of uh, SF6 gas at about 20%. And that's what's, obviously that's what's still used today for the non-expansile concentration of SF6. And we figured that out during that uh, six-month uh, research before I started my uh, residency in uh, July of 73. Now, this was the time when uh, Mockamer was developing the VISC, and obviously Tom had trained uh, alongside him, actually. They were co-fellows together right. down at Baskin Palmer. Um, and so he had some very early access. They were friends, and Tom was doing very big things. And uh, I understand that he put on some early courses as a way to, um, one, give back to the community and grow the department and the reputation. He would put on annual courses. And as a, as a uh, resident, you were involved in those courses? Yes. It was the first uh, vitrectomy course that was held outside of Miami. 
So it was Tom Auberg actually uh, put on the course with Robert Mockamer, uh, George Blankenship, who was on the faculty at Miami, uh, came up. And then we had Steve Charles, who uh, was just, he, he was just on his way to Memphis from the NIH. And we had Ron Michaels, who had just finished his fellowship at Bascom Palmer and was just starting at Johns Hopkins at Wilmer. Is quite a group of people. Probably one of the most memorable things of the course, they did live surgery. And the uh, participants in the course got to go into the operating room and they were able to uh, uh, watch the surgery. Though I do remember one of the participants happened to knock over the microscope, which, which didn't work out too well. The thing I most remember though, was one of the cases that Tom Auberg did was a, a woman uh, from Chicago who uh, had diabetic retinopathy and she had lost her vision uh, about uh, 16 years, 16 or 17 years uh, prior to that when she had had this massive vitreous hemorrhage during her pregnancy. And so she had this 16-year-old uh, uh, son that she had never seen and uh, Tom did a vitrectomy on her and we made uh, post-op rounds on her the next morning. While we were there, she saw her son for the first time. And uh, it was just an amazing thing to see. And uh, it was a very emotional experience for everybody involved. And uh, just made us all realize uh, even more so the potential of what vitrectomy could do. It was just an amazing experience. The other thing about the course I remember is that I was a, uh, a second year resident at the time and uh, Tom asked me to talk about SF6 gas. So I got to, I remember I got to take part in the course, uh, talk about uh, the use of SF6 gas. So uh, that, was, uh, that was also something very memorable for me. Impressive. And so you did a, a chief resident year at the medical college before heading on to your fellowship. Uh, was the fellowship sort of a fait accompli? Was this an arrangement between Tom and Robert and they just kind of told you where you were going? <laughs> or were you involved in the process at all? Of course, there was no match in those days. It was just you'd interview several places and you'd get an offer. And then if you liked the offer, you'd take it. If you didn't like your offer, you'd bargain it with somebody else. I mean, it was just, it was kind of horse trading the way the, before the match. And uh, so my first interview was, was Miami. And I didn't know that uh, Robert uh, Mockamer always did a dexterity test for the uh, uh, fellows that he interviewed. So uh, I, I go up to his office and he gives me he said, I would, like to, I would like to do this little test. And he, he, he had, these, he had these, these five toothpicks and he had some pills. And so you had to take two of the toothpicks and you had to stack the pills. I'll never forget uh, when I was stacking those pills, uh, I had my arms uh, against my body, so trying not to shake while I was doing it. And I think I got maybe three of them stacked before, the, before they fell. And I was sure that I had just completely failed the dexterity examination. But then uh, when I got back, they, I, they contacted me and offered me the uh, fellowship. So, 
so I guess I must have done all right. But uh, fellowship was wonderful. Uh, it was interesting at Miami. They had a uh, they had a they had a scleral buckle uh, retinal detachment service, basically where you learn scleral buckles with Victor Curtin uh, and uh, sometimes Don Gass, uh, Don Nicholson. Then we had a vitrectomy service where we would do vitrectomies with uh, uh, Robert Mockamer and George Blankenship, sometimes Guy O'Grady, Mary Lou Lewis. I think Mary Lou was probably the first uh, female vitreal retinal surgeon. But we would see the patients. You have, uh, the patients in the clinic, uh, especially Mockamer's clinic, extremely high yield as far as uh, patients seen and the, and, the, and the patients who needed vitrectomy. It was a great experience, a wonderful teaching experience. Then you'd operate with him, and uh, he would let you do as much as he thought you were able to do. And he was very supportive. Very, frankly, he was very easy to operate with. If you got into something uh, where it's a little, little touchy or something, he'd sometimes reach over and put his hand on top of your hand. And it, it's funny, it was almost like there was some magic flowing there. The, you know, all at once your confidence would go up and you could do, all, do just about anything when Mockamer's hand was laying on top of your hand. And it was, uh, it was actually quite, a, quite an amazing experience to do that. That's so interesting because I would find it a little disconcerting if somebody was putting their hand on mine while I was in the eye. I actually tried that with people and it's amazing. You know, you'd see a fellow and he'd start to peel the membrane and the tremor would, would start, you know, as he started kind of gripping. I found that I could just, I'd, I'd say, I'm going to put my hand on your hand. I put my hand on the hand and the tremor would stop. And they could just go right ahead and do what they were going to do. It was just kind of, it was really interesting. It just uh, kind of, I think it transfers the confidence. The, the types of cases you could do had to be fairly limited, right? Mostly hemorrhage and uh, diabetics where you were just kind of relieving generalized traction. Is that right? You know, there were a lot of issues. Mainly, we would do uh, membranes if we could uh, dissect the membranes. We did have scissors that we could use, uh, right angle scissors that we could use to uh, section membranes. We couldn't even come close to doing the things that we do now. And the idea of doing a primary retinal detachment with a vitrectomy using that sort of instrumentation was just uh, was obviously unheard of. And it was really interesting as you looked at vitrectomy at that time, uh, it would go along and we would reach a, we would reach a plateau. And you know it would be a plateau that was limited by the instrumentation that we had and the techniques that we had developed at that time. And we'd go along, and then all at once there'd be something new that would be developed, and there'd be this huge jump to a whole new plateau. I'll never forget the plateau that, that occurred when, we, when, the, uh, air, when the air pump was uh, introduced, and that was uh, actually about 1983, and when the uh, endolaser was introduced, which was about uh, right around 1982, 83. Interestingly, it was a, uh, uh, a Milwaukee fellow, Jay Fleischman, uh, who uh, was one of the inventors of the, uh, of the first uh, uh, portable uh, endolaser. And uh, the, uh, 
so the combination of the uh, air pump, which allowed fluid air exchange, uh, really a seamless fluid air exchange, and the uh, endo laser that allowed us to treat uh, posterior retinal breaks and to do uh, endophotocoagulation easily, those were two of the greatest and most important advances that ever came out of uh, vitrectomy. And those came in about uh, 1982 and 1983. That's one of the things that I find so impressive about you guys, the group of people that were there in the very beginning, in the early years, where that early innovation was occurring. Because what people, I think it's easy to forget, is really how risky that process is. When you're on the forefront and you're a trailblazer and you're you know, trying new things, it always entails some degree of risk, almost always, if you're doing something in medicine and it's balancing those benefits and the risks. And the risks of not having continuous air infusion and trying to fix the problems that were trying to be fixed, it could be devastating, obviously. And I would imagine there are lots of stories of some really bad things that happened due to sudden hypotony because we struggle with hypotony even with air pumps. You know, our heart sinks. If that eye collapses, it can be really devastating. I was a first year resident and uh, I was working with Tom, Tom Auberg. And uh, we were doing a, uh, I'll never forget this. We were doing a vitrectomy on a, uh, a, a, a diabetic who had a, had a vitreous hemorrhage. And he was using one of the early VISC. It's probably a VISC 7 by that time. Tom Auberg, uh, those who know Tom know he was, he's the, the ultimate uh, gentleman. Tom, Tom's person, he, he, he just never, he would never, he would never swear. And uh, so the worst thing Tom would ever say is, oh my. And so, and you knew if you were, if you were in surgery with Tom Auberg and he said, oh my, you knew there was trouble. And so I'll never forget this thing. I'm, I'm first year resident, I'm with him, I'm holding the contact lens and, and things stops cutting and starts wrapping the vitreous and we start seeing the, uh, the vitreous base and the peripheral retina pull into the pupil where we're, we can start seeing it. So we've obviously got a huge dialysis that's, that's been created. And Tom says, oh my, oh my, he says it twice. At which point I know, oh my goodness, this we've we've got trouble. And Tom actually said, he said, I've never seen an eye recovery from, recover from this. And uh, so we started uh, removing the uh, lens with the visc, and uh, so removed the cortex. And he tried he's trying to to remove the uh, uh, the nucleus. And it was like an absolute rock and it wouldn't, it wouldn't. So, you know, we went ahead and finished the case and we just left it. And I, you know, I, we were both talking about it and we said, oh, well this, you know, this is probably gonna be, this is probably not gonna end well. It's very interesting. So in 1980, you know, I, I'm back in Milwaukee as a faculty member. I, I see this gentleman, I remember, his, I remember the gentleman that we had done that vitrectomy on, and I remembered that he was the guy that we left the literally calcified nucleus in. And uh, so Tom and I were seeing patients on the same day. And so I went back and I asked Tom, I said, you know, what happened? He said, well, take a look. 
So I went in to take a look, and it was totally gone. It had completely absorbed in spite of leaving the uh, the full nucleus in there but we could i mean we could not manage a uh, a lens with uh, any sort of uh, hardness of the nucleus you'd have to do an intracapsular uh, extraction to remove that lens was really the only way uh, that we could do it at that time so what led you to decide to leave the bascom palmer well i'd done my residency in milwaukee and i really had a love the department there and uh Tom Auberg had been my original mentor, and I, I just loved uh, Tom Auberg. And that, that takes us to the beginning of what people call the uh, Auberg-Abram years at the medical college, right? Through the 80s, you guys uh, created a real powerhouse of a development with so much innovation that, that went on there. It was really a historical period. It was, uh, it was quite a time. Uh, it was it was an amazing time, in fact, and uh, it it really was the Auberg years. I mean, Tom was the stimulus for uh, for most of this, and he set the tone for uh, everybody. But it it was a it was one of those times where you get a group of people and everything sort of comes together. And uh, part of it was philosophical. Uh, the fellowship just took off. Uh, and much of it was just the, uh, I think a lot of it was the way we treated our fellows and uh, the opportunities they got as fellows. And we were an extremely busy service at that time. Mark Hyman, uh, who practiced for years here, here in uh, the, uh, the Detroit area, uh, Mark was a fellow, sp spent a year in the laboratory. And uh, we were... One of the problems we had early in vitrectomy was that we would, when we'd do a vitrectomy on a diabetic in a, in a fakic diabetic patient who had their you know, normal looking crystalline lens, about early in the vitrectomy, we'd start seeing posterior subcapsular changes occurring. And sometimes they would be bad enough that we'd actually have to remove a clear lens uh, in the vitrectomy to be able to see well enough to complete our case. So uh, we were talking about this and we started wondering if there's a way we could prevent this. So uh, with uh, Mark Hyman uh, in the laboratory and in Henry Edelhauser's laboratory, uh, we uh, developed a, a rabbit model of, uh, of uh, diabetes where we uh, use aloxin and made the, the rabbits uh, diabetic. And we found out that, that the uh, glucose level in the lens of these diabetic rabbits was uh, 700 milligrams per deciliter. Extremely high. And so the infusion solution that we were putting in, in had a very low content. And so we thought maybe if we increase the uh, glucose content, of the uh, infusion solution, it will prevent the, the complication. So what we found is that if we put three cc's of 50% dextrose into a 500 cc bottle of BSS, that uh, we would not see the, uh, we found that we didn't see the uh, changes. So then we did a small randomized control clinical trial on uh, is small, only 20 diabetic patients, but uh, we found that uh, 
uh, we could completely prevent the posterior subcapsular changes using three cc's of 50% dextrose in the infusion solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's used today. In so many careers, there's incremental change that happens gradually, but to a limited extent. And when you look at your career, so much has happened from the, the very onset of development of vitrectomy to all of the advances in those different phases that you refer to over time. And, and one of those, one of the things that was so important in moving that progress along was the veil vitrectomy meeting and the innovation that came out of that. And what do you think about the development of retina in the past and the development of it going forward? Mockamer uh, organized the veiled vitrectomy meetings in the uh, late 70s. The first one I went to was in 1980. And uh, uh, I remember the instrumentation was, was really one of the biggest things that was being discussed. How you could see the plateaus in the development of vitrectomy, you know, the air pump, the endolaser, going up C3F8 gas, silicone oil perfluorocarbon liquid. Then, you know, the other things, I mean, the, this huge innovation, uh, Gene Dewan introduced uh, microincisional vitrectomy, 25 gauge vitrectomy, now we have 27 gauge. The other thing was wide angle viewing about, you know, it's maybe 2008 or so that uh, really microincisional really became, really became common. Everybody started using it and also wide-angle viewing started becoming really popular about that time. And uh, uh, it's completely changed what we do. That's what's exciting about vitrectomy. That's what's fun about the specialty. That's why when you've got fellows and you sit around, you become just as excited as they are as you talk about everything that's being developed and everything that's new and what we're gonna do and how we're gonna do this. And you know, that's, what, that's what's wonderful about this specialty. And uh, it's going to endure. And uh, uh, I think, you know, as good as it is right now, I still, we're just at the beginning. And I can't think of any better way to end this chat with you, Gary. Fantastic, thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun.